your love and your compassion for the family, they will remember you forever. When I worked at the at Breckenridge Hospital, I used to have people who would walk up to me in public all the time, like in the grocery store, and they'd say, oh my gosh, you're Tanya, you work at Breckenridge, and, and they would be describing how I called them in and what we talked about in the family room and how I walked them down the hall into the, into the ER to see their loved one. You realize how much it means to people to care. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. For the second time, I'm visiting with Tanya Glenn. She's been on the show before with an episode that released in January of 2017. And since then, I've gotten tons of questions for Tanya from you guys. I wanted to ask some of those questions and to talk to her about a documentary she recently released. In this episode, we discuss how in that documentary, she challenges leaders of EMS departments to better invest in the care of paramedics' mental health and how she works with dispatchers to process traumatic audio memories, why she models her practice after Southwest Airlines, and which cuss word she finds the most versatile. I don't want to make you wait any longer, so here she is in all her brilliance, Tanya Glenn. Thank you for letting me come spend time with you again. Thank you, Ginger. It's so it's so awesome to be here. And I'm really honored and privileged to do this again. I've heard from so many people from the first podcast, and I've met so many people who said that they really loved it and benefited from it. And I mean, people across the country, it's been amazing. So I'm super excited to be here again. Oh, across the country. That makes me feel good. Well, first, I want to acknowledge the fact that I'm probably sitting in a chair of people who you take care of. Yes. That feels really cool to me. You're on the couch. I'm on the couch. (laughs) Okay, this room feels good. I I can vouch for the fact that it feels awesome in here. Thank you. Sitting across from you. Thank you. There's so much that I want to talk to you about. First, the documentary. um, It was called First Responder Resilience, Smashing the Stigma. I was very thankful to get to see the first screening of it. I sat next to Dr. Pickett, who's been on the show. It was great. Very, very touching. Very well produced. Why did you make it? These days, we know emergency services is at critical mass in terms of suicide and post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a lot of war stories. There's a lot of, I have PTSD, or this is what I went through. There's also a documentary that came out, which was just actually for law enforcement. And I was super excited to go watch it. And at the end of the documentary, every single officer either quit or got fired. And I was like, thinking, this is not the answer. This is not what we do. We don't just share war stories and we don't show documentaries where the messages don't say anything or you're basically screwed. So I wanted to create a documentary about answers and solutions and success. We know that there's problems. We know that first responders have a hard time asking for help. And so I wanted them to see seven people who've walked through hell who got help, who kept their jobs, who still kept their marriages, who are still working, thriving, living, who have spread their wings and basically flown on with their lives, because that's what we do every day here. And I wanted the nation to see that there are answers and solutions. One of the things that struck me the most during that documentary is imagine like you're positioned in a scenario where you have to get along with the leaders of huge departments because you're um, you're wanting to make entry into their department and help them. One of the things you did, you're, what I perceived you'd be doing, is you really st- you stuck very strongly to your mission. And I think your mission is for the everyday medic and taking care of them. Uh, you called to the mat 
those leaders and, and basically you said it like no more. We can't keep turning and burning these guys with the attrition and just hiring them and turning them over and that you strongly believe paramedics can have longevity in their career if we take good care of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the key is, you know, it starts it starts with the early days when they're cadets and rookies and we train resilience and we instill that in them. And then as things come up, we deal with them in the aftermath. You know, we actually, my existing customers, we are at the point between working with peer support and our practice, we're catching things so quickly. We're actually working to prevent PTSD. We're intervening so quickly that we're mitigating all of it. And if we can get to that point, then you know, my point in when I called out the the leaders is to say, if you're telling your folks to suck it up and that's your mental health plan, you're wrong, right? And you're pouring all of this money to hire all these new people because the the attrition is so high and you won't spend a few thousand dollars on on good mental health and peer support. It's ridiculous. I mean, it just, it, it doesn't add up. And she said this in the documentary. The problem today is that a lot of leaders in police, fire, and EMS don't understand the importance of mental health. They feel like they don't have time. So what they do is they budget for high attrition rates for people to quit, burnout, PTSD, whatever it is, they quit, and to replace them. It costs about $60,000 to put someone through a police academy or a fire academy at a minimum. And so when you save that because you save your employees, you really can't even put a price on on a paramedic who's very seasoned, who knows the city and knows the tempo and the population, when you get a new person, they know none of that. So when you're, when you're people who have been through trauma, when they don't get care and they quit, not only are you paying for uh, to hire a new person, which is thousands of dollars, you're losing the wisdom. I get messages, gosh, at least once a month, someone somewhere in the country saying, you know, I'm just a medic in this department. I want to start addressing it. I want to approach the leaders. I want to implement something or some type of program. The first thing I say is, well, are you, do you know about peer support programs? Do you know what that model looks like? And not everyone does. Can you tell me a little bit about what peer support programs look like and where did that come from? So peer support programs, these days, we've moved away from those sit in a circle, talk about your feelings, debriefings, because a lot of studies have shown that either they're not effective or they, even worse, cause more harm than good. The peer support programs that we're building across the country are first responders that basically have the interest, the desire, and the passion to help others. And what I do is I train them to intervene with their fellow first responders, their colleagues, on the worst days of their lives, and to start to implement crisis intervention, good care, and then basically getting them to the help that they need further down the road when it's appropriate. So I teach these teams to start with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, when we're in a crisis, we're at the, the base of that pyramid, food, water, clothing, shelter, safety comes first. And as we stabilize, we move up that pyramid and we're ready for like the psychological needs and, and the ability to listen without fixing, to help them problem solve, put one foot in front of the other and take things one step at a time is what I'm teaching those peer support teams to do. I actually model my training after, um, I believe, the strongest team in the country is the United States Border Patrol. And it's a program in implemented um, in 2008 by Dr. Ken Middleton. And it's a brilliant program. It's very, very effective. And I've trained that that training for them. I've, um, I've responded with those teams. 
And so I've borrowed heavily from it because I just love how it meets people where they are when they need it. And it doesn't, it doesn't force people to sit in a circle. It doesn't compel people to speak. You know, when our world is turned upside down, we all need somebody there to wipe our tears and clean the vomit and pick up the pieces. And that's what peer support does as step one. And then we move through until people heal and we continue with them until they heal. And that's how we do it. I love it. It feels so safe yeah. to yeah. have a just a true peer that you don't have to even say much. They can almost read your face, you know, or they've been there themselves. Absolutely. At the screening, the first question that I asked was, if you could have us all go home, you had an audience of, I don't know how many people. It was a lot of people about in the 200. audience. Yeah, yeah, 200 people. I wondered out loud and uh, to you about if you could have us all go home and just send us with one action item, what would that be? And I fully expected you to say, well, just share the video, right? Like just you wanted some type of like amplification of the video. I mean, that's that's often what people are trying to do is just get like clicks and numbers and they don't have like a clear vision of what it is they really are trying to do. And your answer, I was totally not suspecting what your answer was. But now that I watched the video, I heard it in the video as well. You are a woman on a clear mission. It's so admirable. You know what you're trying to do. What your answer was, what you wished that everyone in the room could do is reach out into their networks to encourage first responders who have any interest in becoming counselors, therapists, to pursue that career path and come help you. Come help you take care of other first responders. Definitely. Definitely. I'm at this point in my career, I've been doing this for 27 years, right? And I want 27 more. I don't think I'll be able to do that. (laughs) But... It, it is so imperative at this point that we have competent clinicians who know what they're doing. There is a small wave of law enforcement, fire, and EMS currently in grad school. And as they process out and they get licensed, that'll be our first wave. But we really need a lot of people, any first responder, considering that second career, knowing maybe you've got you know five, six, eight years left in your career, and maybe you're thinking about going back to school because you know you want to retire, but you're not you know you're not ready to really retire, and you want to go do something else. That'll be the savings grace, because let me tell you what we're up against. A few weeks ago, I did EMDR on a uh, firefighter. And he came in and first he messaged me on Facebook and he's like, I don't know if this is going to work and I'm not sure. And I was like, Hey, no, I'll see you today. You're coming. I'll see you today. I got you. Don't worry. You know, that's how I speak to my clients. And he came in and he was anxious and angry and we sat down and it turns out that the first therapist that he talked to who quote unquote specializes in first responders was talking to him in their first session. They work 4896s and she asked him, how do you stay awake for 48 hours? And I was completely blown away, as was he, right? You see what I'm up against. They walk in my door. If they've had an experience like that with someone who who says that they legitimately work with first responders, yet has no idea, has never stepped into a fire station, much less ridden out. And so I'm tired of that. Like, I'm I'm tired. I'm tired. Honestly, when I hire on my team, this is a tough practice. You know, we have a, a really tough population And when I hire, I have a a case manager at Indeed and she calls me every so often and she's like, Hey, your, your ad isn't getting a lot of hits. And I'm like, good. Cause I don't want random people applying in my ads. I'm like, you will write out and you better love police, fire and EMS and you know, all this stuff. And so I'll, I'll get 20 applications. I'll hire two and one will fail. Like that's statistically what we're, what we're having to deal with because it is such a specific population that needs a certain level of care. And you can't half-ass it with this population because they'll call you out. 
Yeah, or they won't call you out and they'll just be sitting there and they'll feel the disconnect and they'll vanish. Exactly. You know, they'll just, they'll instantly smell it. They'll sniff it out and they'll mm-hmm. be like, yeah, yeah, you don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'm out. Yeah. And you do get it. And it's because of hard work. Like you go, I've seen you with the flight helmets on and the, you know, you're up on the ladders of the fire trucks and like you're out there doing it. Thank you. I don't, I don't know what drives you. It's working. Keep doing it. I love it. I love it. That's the best thing. Who wouldn't want to climb ladders? Yeah. Well, lots of people actually, Tanya. I don't get that. And here's a bit from the documentary. My hope also is that we start to cultivate mental health professionals to work with this population. I think there's a lot of awareness and interest in veterans ever since the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think now is the time to start to to bring up some clinicians who really truly want to do this. But let me tell you something. If you think you want to work with first responders, if you say you work with first responders, without a doubt, you better be riding along. You better be out there on those ambulances in those patrol cars and those fire trucks, up in communications under a headset, learning, knowing, and doing it. That is the most effective way to get in with this population. Because afterwards, they see you and they know that you've ridden out and they know maybe you caught a really crazy call and you know all that good stuff and they have respect for you. They also know that you know terminology and that they don't have to slow down and explain everything to you. When I talk to people that aren't in the fire service and aren't in EMS and don't have any experience with anything along those lines, they don't get the full picture. They don't get the full story, the details of the calls of what we do, what we see, what we experience. So I have a specific question for you. This is from a friend of mine. She works for a flight service and she, you know, it's been June and announced July and it's just what we call trauma season. This is when lots of just gnarly wrecks are happening. And she unfortunately has seen like back to back really tragic traumas where young people, you know, in their twenties and thirties who just got married or are just beginning college and they've died right in front of her tragically. She's processing all of this. And we have this great thing going where she will text me kind of the details of the case. And just to me, it's, um, she's processing it. It's just about her writing it. Right. But she got feedback from another clinician. They told her you care too much. And I just wrote her back. I was like, fuck that. Exactly. Fuck that. I don't, yeah. I don't believe you can care too much, but this is the advice I need from you or the help I need from you. I think we do settle into some type of balance between empathy and um, compassion, but then also like maybe saving a little piece of ourselves from going all the way into that person's experience. Can you speak to that? I really, it's a huge tall order, you know, of what kind of guidance you could give someone about how to like the mindset, the, the frame to which they look at these cases because they want to be present with their patient. They want to be present with the family. Right. Is there guidance about how to keep them from going so far that now they're like part of the family? I hear all the time, especially from the seasoned first responders. I hear this all the time. I went in to do that death notification and all of a sudden I had a lump in my throat and I felt like really overwhelmed and all of a sudden I had this this incredible like connection and and I typically sit across from folks when we talk about this and I'm like, congratulations, that's the F word. And they're like, what F word? Feelings. And they're like, no, no, not, I don't have those. And I'm like, but you do, <laughs> right? Yeah. So with our seasoned first responders, I find that, you know, we grow up. 
we go through our own loss. We lose parents, siblings, friends. And we look at some of these families and we think, wow, you were just starting your life together. You know, and we wonder how they're going to get through this incredible, incredible tragedy because we know the toll because personally we've experienced some of that. And here's the thing. What I tell people all the time is that your love and compassion for the people you serve, that's what brought you to this. And then we kind of go through a period where we get a little callous, right? Where we get a little removed and we get a little jaded. Usually what happens to most people who come around and endure the entire career and make it to retirement is they reconnect because they have wisdom and wisdom is hard earned and it causes gray hair, but it's okay to love on those families and it's okay to love on those patients because you're part of that process. You're part of, of what's happened and they will never forget you for what you've done. And that's a really important role. Even if the patient doesn't make it, your love and your compassion for the family, they will remember you forever. I promise you. When I worked at the at Breckenridge Hospital, I used to have people who would walk up to me in public all the time, like in the grocery store, and they'd say, oh my gosh, you're Tanya, you work at Breckenridge. And, and I, of course, had no idea who they were. And they would be describing how I called them in and what we talked about in the family room and how I walked them down the hall into the into the ER to see their loved one, you realize how much it means to people to care. You save your jadedness and your numbing and your guardedness for the people who are yelling at you and threatening you in the back of the ambulance and MFing you and threatening your family. Yep, that's when you go to neutral and you're like, whatever, dude. But when it's somebody that you connect with, it's okay because that family and that patient, they need you. And I always tell people, you know, if something happens in my house, don't send me robo-medic and robo-cop, just the facts, ma'am. Send me the one who's going to put his arm around me and say it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, that's huge. And as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about calls where I've run where I really connected, like I was really present with the family. I want to transition to this other question I had for you about sounds. It's been a long time since I've been in the field. I still go to the hospital with students. I have memories that are a decade old. They're memories, though. They're not... Um, troublesome. Right now, I could tell you about memories of, it seems like the, the voices are the last little, I can't really, their faces are a little blurry, but their spoken words are so clear to me. I think about our communications medics, our dispatchers, that seems really hard because I've got maybe like five of those audio tracks. Uh-huh. They've got like days and days and every day mm-hmm. of them. Our first responders are being exposed to things that they would have never guessed that they would see or hear or smell or deal with. Oh my God! Okay, is is every okay? Frozen in the house and people are injured in here. We got two people injured here, please. Okay, what part of the body? Hands, face. I don't know. I got blood all over my house. Oh my God. Do you help people process audio from traumatic events the way you would images? Absolutely. EMDR is amazing, amazing for the the audio. Dispatchers always come in with the audio and sort of the imagined picture of, of what they had, right? So EMDR, you can start with a tactile feeling, like you, if you picked up something gross, you know, that you can start with that. That's actually when in my EMDR training, I had a tactile memory uh, when I was flying out with Starflight and something I had to do, <laughs> which is pretty gnarly. And so, um, so you can start with any of the five senses. So for our communication specialists, 
specialists, it's going to be the audio, the screaming or the whatever they heard over and over and over again. And we start there. It's amazing because it always goes to the same thing, which is that feeling of helplessness. So in EMDR, the most processed emotion is that feeling of helplessness. Whether you're on scene or you're listening and standing by on that radio, it processes all, all the same way. And it's amazing because the relief that you get is phenomenal because it dissipates, it fades. And then, of course, the other thing that happens, the part B of EMDR, is your perspective changes. So dispatchers will start with, I was completely helpless. There's nothing I could do. And then by the time they're done with EMDR, they're saying, well, you know what, Tanya, I hung in there. I, I had all those officers, you know, questions answered and I was, I was clearing the channels and I was doing all, I did my job and oh my goodness, how great is that? Right. How great is that? So we move from a place of helplessness to, aha, I did my job. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. This was a tough question I got from a listener. They just sent it to me maybe three or four months ago in hopes that I would talk to you again. She is a flight nurse, I believe. She's got maybe a 12 or 13-year-old kid, and that 12 or 13-year-old kid watched enough TV, and on the national news, um, they covered this Guardian flight that went missing for a long time and then was discovered to have crashed. And she was looking for guidance about what, what to talk with her kid about about that. You know, do they address it directly? I know that you wrote a kid's book, and so maybe we start there. It was for kids of uh, law enforcement because our police are being shot at and killed. I guess the book is for teaching a kid about that possibility, or they, they're seeing it on the national news, so they know it's a possibility. Right. Tell me about the book. So the book was written because we've had a huge uptick in law enforcement kids since Ferguson. They're very in tune, even when mom and dad are trying to turn off the TV or kind of hide that stuff. The kids are so intuitive. They just, I mean, they smell your stress, right? Kids are amazing. So I wrote the book to give parents a tool to read to their kids, to give kids a book where they could read and then express their feelings. And also it kind of plants a seed for departments. Like, hey, in the book, the main character, Christopher, talks about he talks about going to therapy and Tyra, my therapy dog. <laughs> so she made a, a sneak appearance in there. And then this, this kiddo also talks about going to like a family day at the police department and how he got to see all the things that keep them safe. And they got to play in the patrol cars and they got to, they got to handle things. And a kid at any age they're picking up on it. They're stressed about it. So avoiding it is not the answer. You're avoiding it makes them really think that you're trying to hide something. And so I would say with any kids, talk about your job, talk about what you do, talk about the thousands of flights that your company makes every year where it's, it's successful and nothing bad happens, right? Show them the equipment, show them the safety features, let them meet pilots, let them, you know, whatever consoles them and helps them understand that what you saw on TV was not the norm, right? And sometimes we need to put that into perspective. What's next? I'm thrilled that you're in Austin. That's great because whenever someone comes to me, I'm like, great, Tanya's around the corner. But you can't be all over the country at once, is your current approach to just respond to large events personally in person and then just continue to serve the central Texas area? I kind of look at your model and I wish it existed everywhere. Do you think about that? I, I do. Um, yes. At some point I do have to retire. <laughs> so mm-hmm. my goal is to build as many good quality programs as possible across the country we have multiple customers in Arizona and Virginia. We're in three states, technically. 
and I'm licensed in all three states. So my goal is now more than ever, because I have a great team that can travel and deliver the message and do the training and do the clinical work like I've never had before. I have a great team. So my goal is to continue to serve Central Texas and do all the things we have always done here. And then as much as possible, start to build similar programs across the country, get clinicians competently trained, hopefully lots of people with first responder experience trained, build peer support teams, and really just change the culture of emergency services. That's, that's the goal. And if I weren't here right now, what would you be doing? I would actually have a patient yeah. <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah. Since I'm in town today, I would be seeing one of my patients and, you know, and next week I travel again and here we go. Mm-hmm. So during the movie screening, it was real obvious that like you're into rock, you cuss. And like, <laughs> once I put a microphone in your hand, you get all cleaned up. But really, like, I remember that night with the with the movie or that day with the movie, you were just letting it rip. Yeah, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that works. Uh-huh. I think that works for paramedics to feel safe around you. That you're not all buttoned up, you know? Yeah. So um, so <laughs> I do cuss a lot. So the hard rock, where does that come from? Well, I'm a child of the 80s. So, you know, I grew up with heavy metal and, you know, hair bands and stuff like that. Honestly, that music is what I work out to every day. And that's how I clear my mind in the morning. And it really kind of sets my tone. Like, let's get in there and tackle these demons. The culture at the practice, I don't model my business after other practices because I just don't think that works. I model my practice after Southwest Airlines and that culture of customer service and quality care and fun and casual and not stuffy. The word casual is on your website. I saw that. Yeah. (laughs) Very important. We wear jeans here. We don't dress up. It really changes the dynamics because people feel comfortable here. Mm Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Like we'll have people who will pull up in their patrol cars in the parking lot and they don't care. They'll come in in full uniform. When you've created that, you know, you've created a place where people feel safe. So that's just always been my style is, you know, when I've had to go to court in the past, if I had to go to a hearing or something and I was dressed for court, I started to notice the difference in the quality of session I was having because I was buttoned up and the cussing. I mean, we actually, in our <laughs> when we hire therapists, we're like, Hey, what's your favorite cuss word? And the answer is, it better be fuck, right? Know, right. That's like every that day is the here. Best one. <laughs> that is the best one. And it has so many meanings. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's who we are. It works. Yeah. That it, it does work. I love Southwest airlines approach as well. They just, they left the human and everything. Exactly. And I've started talking about love as well in the, in the classroom, which is almost like unheard of where uh-huh. someone would t- use that word. And, and I borrowed that from Southwest airlines. Like they use the word love and they have hearts yep. and all of their branding. And absolutely. It's, it's nice to bring the human back into these conversations. We get so stiff. Yeah. You know? uh-huh. Oh yeah. When you look at their stories of customer service and success and making things happen and, you know, no airlines perfect, but when you look at how they approach, you know, human beings, their passengers, their customers, their, their clientele, you see that there's a strong connection between the success of that company and how they treat their employees and their customers. It's amazing. Southwest Airlines actually is the flight attendant uh, peer support team is one of our customers. And so I spent a lot of time at headquarters 
And I started with them right after 9-11. And Herb Kelleher would be in the hallway at 5 p.m. with his wild turkey in one hand and his cigar in the other. And he'd see me come and I'm some little contractor. I'm like 32 years old at this point. And he'd be like, oh, here comes trouble. How you doing, Tanya? Like he remembered my name. I am no one there. He and Colleen Barrett were so connected and loving. That to me taught me so much about how to run a business and and how to create a really nice practice for our customers. At the screening, you addressed every single person in the room and thanked them for being there. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. That that stuff matters. You know, it just, I'm just kind of replaying everything you've said in this conversation. It just hit me that you said someone Facebook messaged you. Yes. You get that that's, that's novel, right? Like that's, (laughs) It, I, it's funny to hear you say that because it happens all the time, like all yeah, the time. Yeah, but not yeah. everybody is responding or even has it oh. set up to be that accessible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Accessibility is huge. Huge. Yeah. Now, I, I don't want my clients texting me at two o'clock in the morning say, saying, hey, I need to reschedule next Wednesday at you know 3 p.m. But I definitely want people reaching out if, if they need it, if there's a crisis. I believe in making it as easy as possible. And not everybody can pick up the phone or start that email and send it. So if it's a messenger, like quick message, I just welcome it because it, it connects us to people. You know, one of the things about, about our practice is our turnaround time on phone calls. We, I mean, rapidly as quickly as possible. I was just talking to a fire chief who's his department's becoming a customer. And he said, how, how long does it take to get somebody in? I was like, well, they're going to get a call back the same day. And we generally have people in within one or two days because that's, we understand, we get it. It's hard to ask for help. And when you do, it's usually shit hitting the fan. So we're ready. We really like to let people know that they're important and that they're making the right decision to ask for help. Mm -hmm. You've talked a lot about, it seems like I hear you say 48 hours as being a a key time after trauma to have processed that trauma. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? We, we want things settling down after a couple of days, but what we're looking for is seven days post-incident, we want the call fading, and at 14 days post-incident, we want it banked in your long-term memory. In other words, you might always remember the call, but it's not like as pervasive in the replay and the recall as it was on days one, two, and three. And if at 14 days, it's not banking in your long-term memory, that's when we want people to get help because at this point, it's all prevention right? It hasn't become PTSD yet. So the whole point is, Hey, if you're not okay at two weeks, let's tackle it. And I'll tell you what, a lot of, a lot of our clients, because we've trained them, they're like, Oh, it's two weeks. I'm not good. I'm going in. (laughs) It's like, Oh, this is great because it's so much easier in the preventative aspect. So a student comes to me on a Monday and they've had a gnarly call over the weekend. What do I tell them to do? Let's say it's been 24 hours since they saw a hanging or something like that. I'll tell you what I've been telling them to do which is spend time processing it, like by taking a walk and thinking about it, journal about it, talk to a therapist about it, talk to someone that was on the call about it. But I've given them advice to not talk to their spouse about it or loved ones about the details. Is that good advice? Well, um, generally, yes. But let's say their spouse is, you know, also a first responder or has been in the military or, you know, sometimes the spouse, like, you know, my person, he's 30 years in the Marine Corps and 25 years in the Marshal Service. So he, he, he can hear it all. <laughs> so he's a good outlet. He's a good resource. If your significant other spouse isn't in the, in the zone to hear that, and they're, if they're shocked by it, and if you're going to traumatize them by it, then, then don't. But definitely journal, walk, process through it, talk to, to you, to other students, to um, the people on the call with them for sure. 
Hydrate, get rest. Those are huge, right? Hydration, nutrition, rest, and exercise. The thing about exercise, I see first responders all the time. One of the first things they do when they go through trauma is they stop working out. Let me tell you what it sounds like. Day one post-incident. Well, I'm really sore today. That was a really, that was a butt kicker of a, of a call or a shift. So I'm going to skip the gym day two. Oh crap. Now it's on the news. And I don't want people know I was on that call and I'm on the news. I don't want to go to the gym day three. It's another excuse day four. It's another excuse four weeks out. They've quit working out. The worst thing you can do for your mental health is to quit working out and to use alcohol as coping. So those are really, really important. And so I really, really push those. And I'm a sleep zealot. I think magic happens during sleep. And I think you even said that in the movie, or you talk about REM sleep and that EMDR is similar to REM and that that your brain is processing things. Right. So they need sleep. I mean, they're processing during sleep. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Even if, you know, after an early call, a couple of nights of nightmares, that's actually healthy. Your brain is, is grappling through this event and it's, it's downloading and it's processing and it's cleaning. But again, seven days post-incident, we want those nightmares to be like really slowing down. And at 14 days post-incident, we want them stopped. What else, Tanya? I'll just say one more thing. Say one more thing. Okay. So where we are now, and I don't share this very often, but I feel like your audience would get this. There's a meme about suicide prevention and it's a veteran, right? And it shows him in his bathroom with a gun basically at the bottom of his chin. And the mirror behind him is that same person in combat in full gear. And he's reaching through that mirror, like yelling stop and trying to reach out to his, his veteran self who's about to kill himself. And I think that um, a lot of times me and my team, we feel a lot like the, the guy in the mirror. Um, because it's so bad and there's so much suicide and there's so much pain and so much trauma. And there's so many people who just won't ask for help. And we feel like we are that person in the mirror reaching out, yelling, no, stop, you know, please, please get help. Please. We're here. Please call us, please. You know, I mean, we have people who come from across the country and we do these two to three day intensives there's, there's so much good help to be had. And we just, we really are at critical mass. And I want to say to your audience is that if you're struggling, get help. And if you find the therapist who doesn't understand how you stay up for 24 or 48 hours, because they're freaking clueless, keep looking, but don't give up. Don't give up. I think that so often when people reach that point, they have completely change their whole thought process. Depression is mean that way. It, it makes you think that people will be better off without you. But sh- trust me, people are hurting without you. People, they don't want your life insurance policy. They want you. They want you, mother, father, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. They, they want you alive. And so this job doesn't have to take the ultimate toll on everybody. It's a tough job, but everyone's drawn to this job because they're resilient and because they're altruistic. So don't let the job take that from you. Remember that. What does critical mass mean? You say that in the movie. You said it just now. What is that? What are you saying? Shit show. We're at, we're at all out freaking shit show war and suicide and post-traumatic stress and not enough help. And you know, that's where we are. I've, I've been fighting this for 27 years and it seems like it just, the awareness has increased so much that that the dialogue has started and then the more the dialogue starts, the more people feel like, well, 
everybody's screwed up and police fire and EMS and so am I, but that's not true. Like we really are at a point where it's time to have programs in place and leaders need to have programs in place, good, effective programs in place immediately. Let's stop there. Okay. Thanks, Tanya. Thank you. I can't think of a better way to end this episode than to switch over to the conclusion of the Smashing the Stigma documentary produced by Jacob McLeod. If you want to see the full documentary, you can find a link in the show notes at medicmindset.com. I'm so, so in awe of you guys every single day. I absolutely adore you. I love you. And I thank you for what you do. Started counting up the losses. What a begin to Reaching